0: Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job's not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. If we go into a severe slowdown, don't you dare go blaming our valiant Fed chief, Jerome Powell. Not after today. but now For the better part of two months, I said over and over again that he's way too bullish on the economy. Today, though, Powell did a complete about-face. He recognized the slowdown in the economy we've been talking about every night out here. Like any good Fed chief, he seemingly changed his mind. Hence today's magnificent rally. With the Dow surging 618 points, the SP skyrocketing 2.3%. Bye, bye, bye. And the NASDAQ pole vaulting 2.95%. House of pleasure. What exactly did Powell do? At the beginning of October, he told us that interest rates might have to go up substantially because employment was running so hot. He even mused about needing to overshoot on rates to cool things down. Ugh. The result, the market went into bear mode. Crushing all sectors, investors accepted it was the end of the economic expansion and the beginning of the decline, a decline mandated by Powell himself. We spent a huge amount of time trying to, t- you know, talking to executives on the show, you know that. And the more I talked to the more I realized that Powell, a terrific guy, was simply being too exuberant. I hate to admit it, but I became a scold. Going on and on about, first, a slowdown in housing, then a big decline in car sales, exemplified by the giant layoffs just announced at GM, then an unrelenting plunge in oil, which threatens to bring down the strongest part of the economy, and finally a slowdown in retail sales at the same time that a huge amount of newly tariffed Chinese inventory was pulled through to these companies' warehouses with no place to put it. In the end, I accused the Fed of not doing enough homework, of relying too much on young staffers without ties to business, or maybe on anecdotal information about the strength or, of course, the only prison that seemed to matter to them, employment. Even as we've gotten so many data points that suggest hiring Pete just when Powell was at his most ebullient. It sure didn't help that at the exact same time the economic outlook was deteriorating, the president was talking out of both sides of his mouth, saying business is red hot, yet the Fed is going to wreck things if it keeps tightening. Of course, if things are really red hot, then we can handle more rate hikes and should expect them. Ian and I still support one more hike in December to get rates to a neutral level for the economy. In early October, Powell seemed to think that we were far from neutral. Now that he's done the homework, though, he says we're just below neutral. That's quite a change, and it's a change that I applaud. Now, I am totally conscious that there is nothing more boring than prattling on about the Fed. But I felt that if Powell blinked, if he, ad- if he adopted our one in weight strategy here on Money, rather than sticking by his plan for four rate hikes with a possible overshoot, then we might be able to avoid being stuck in a protracted bear market. In fact, I said that if he changed his mind, we'd go from bear mode to bull mode in a heartbeat. And that's exactly what happened today. You want an example? In a bear market, even the slightest piece of negative news can cause endless downturns in the stocks of high-quality companies. In a bull market, stocks ignore this stuff. Today, we got some bull market behavior thanks to Pal. Last night, Salesforce.com reported a terrific quarter, and the stock ripped higher in after-hours trading. But then it shed most of its points during the day ahead of what many Fed watchers expected would be a continuation of Pal's absurdly sanguine rap from early October. So when Powell got a reality check and changed his mind, we suddenly went back into bull market mode. And Salesforce's stock soared, only climbing 10%. Then all of the cloud kings exploded higher, even giving up and left for dead stocks like Alphabet, Amazon, and Apple moved up. You know what they are? Those are the triple A's. That's my new name for them, the triple A's. And they had run out of battery power, and they got recharged. At the same time, the most economically sensitive stocks, the transports, they ignited. And many of the cyclical stocks that had been written off roared back to life. It was like watching the ugly duckling morph into a swan, a normal white one, not the fabled black swan that so many hedge funds come on air and talk about. Oh, it's bad, seventh inning. Now, it's also worth mentioning. (laughs) Come on, isn't that what they do? It's also worth mentioning that, that this move was pretty tough to swallow for the many commentators, many, who'd spent weeks defending Powell's old position, arguing more rate hikes are needed because the economy's going gangbusters. Now, I am not by any means. I want to make this clear. I'm not by any means saying that these acolytes, some people would call them toadies. I am too diplomatic. These acolytes were thrown under the bus by Powell's changed position. It was more like he threw them under a F-150. But it's not over yet. Remember, we had two earls we needed to jump to reach the bullish promised land. Now, we've checked off, Owl. we've checked off the Jerome Powell box. He won't be the cause of the major slowdown night after today. And I was worried about that, but no more. However, we still have the G20 summit, China. And this is actually much tougher not to crack. Here's the scene. President Trump has said he needs to take the tariffs on Chinese imports from 10 to 25% because so far, they haven't had much success in getting China to change its bad behavior. He's also threatening to slap tariffs on another $250 billion worth of imports, which is pretty much everything they sell to us. We don't know what the president's going to do. I don't think he knows what he's going to do. I mean, he's kind of an unpredictable guy. (laughs) Let me just repeat that. He's kind of an unpredictable guy. (laughs) But my educated guess, Trump will say that he's not satisfied with what the Chinese are doing so far. So he's going to take the tariffs. He's going to increase them 10 to 25 percent. However, he'll also extend an olive branch, which is that he'll be willing to hold off on applying his tariffs to the other half of China's U.S.-bound exports to see if China improves the way it deals with us. Now, personally, I'm not some laissez-faire free trader when it comes to China. I think they play dirty. Communist Party has never played by the rules we thought uh, that they would do after they joined the World Trade Organization. I don't know how we get them to cut this stuff out. Maybe the president's trade war will work simply by starving their economy of money. But if I put my stock hat on, I want to see some sort of deal with China because that's good for business. Maybe they'll lift a lot of their trade restrictions and we don't need to raise the tariffs to 25%. Wouldn't that be great for the market? But I don't think the Chinese will bite. So do the averages go down if there's no deal from the G20 meeting and the rates just go from 10 to 25? Probably. Unless Trump puts some lipstick on the tariff pig that I haven't thought of. I expect it will have a bit of a hiccup, though, nothing catastrophic. Why not something worse than that? Because the most toxic aspect of this stock market has been the, that we were fighting the Fed all the way. As of today, I don't think we're fighting the Fed much longer. Bottom line, after today, I think that Jay Powell is now in the one-and-wait camp, just where he should be. Man's a grown-up. Regardless of what the president's saying about him, Powell's a rigorous thinker, a flexible leader, good guy. And today he may have given both the economy and the stock market a new lease on life, provided that the president's g 24 foray doesn't end with the White House getting even more bellicose on China. The last thing the stock market needs is an iPhone tariff. Today, though, was a win, a big fat W. Enjoy it. Matt in Oklahoma. Matt! What's up, Kramer? Hello, right. you tell me. Tiffany had Tiffany had one of its worst its worst day in 3 years and one of the worst over the past 5 years. And I was wondering is this the beginning of a long fall for Tiffany? Or more of a one-off sell-off like L Brands and Target had after they posted disappointing earnings? Uh, well, you know, like I actually think that L Brands is not one-off. They're still having problems. They cut that dividend in half. Target, I thought, was actually not that bad. Tiffany's not that bad either. They need a weaker dollar. Uh, and this is part of the reason why, the, why I, Jerome Powell had to blink. Stock like Tiffany being down that much is a sign that maybe things are not as good footing. I think they're better fish to fry. Like, I, including, by the way, Coles, which I told the uh, club members is the best one. Let's go to Phil in. ooh, where my daughter is, Oregon. Phil. Hey Jim, it's an honor. I you am thrilled. You called Fed, and um, you even had Leesman saying it was
1: it was Jimmy one and, and Powell zero.
0: Yeah, I thought but that I was hope nice. right. That was nice that he said that. It, it made me feel uh, that was nice. I liked that. I know. I know. I liked that. It was surprising. Yeah. It made me feel good. There you go. <laughs> hey, listen, you know, I'm, I'm a kind man. I'm a good man. That's actually from Apocalypse Now. I'm fine. That was good. What's up? Well, it's great that you're working working
1: so hard for the home gamers. Where That's what it's hero, about, man. You know. it's, not
0: for, it's not for the officials. It's not for the CEOs. It's for you. I know. Um, my, my stock that I've been watching since earlier this year is Office Depot. And, I, you know, I really like the CEO and, and his enthusiasm, his uh,
1: innovation, and, um, you know, the, the cash hoard they built of a billion dollars, the stock buyback bike program. Um, you know, I just want to get your thoughts because I hope I'm not missing something. You
0: know what, Phil? I have not looked at that. Uh, you know, I thought they were going to be wiped out by Costco and Walmart and Amazon, and they're still kicking down 8% for the year. You know what? Before I just say forget about them, I got to do some digging. When you see an outfit like that and the stock is actually going up, as opposed to say JCPenney, which can't, that means I got to do more homework. And I am not going to let you down. I'm going to do more homework. And thank you for pointing out what Steve said. That was very gentleman. And I'm thrilled. Uh, I want all I want is for the Fed not to wreck Main Street. It's already It can hit the stock market. I just don't want to hurt Main Street. All right. We are no longer officially fighting the Fed as of today. And what beauty that brings to the market well man money tonight we hear a lot about how the rollout of 5g is going to uh well let's say totally change our lives how much will it actually impact your day-to-day life i got the ceo qualcomm the man behind much of the technology at play for all the details then an analyst just called this stock the best idea for 2019 but does the viewpoint hold I'm, uh hold a little weight i'm gonna high DXC technology to see if it could be a bargain buy or if its decline could be nothing but a red flag and the market may be heading higher today but I don't want you to let your guard down entirely that am I a in play that could be worth owning despite the unknowns I'll reveal the name just ahead so stay with Kramer
1: don't miss a second of Mad Money follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag mad
0: tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnBC.com. Hey, I'm, hey, I'm Kramer. I'm Kramer. Welcome, to Welcome to Mad Money. Mad money. Other people want to make friends. Make... I'm, just I'm just trying to make trying you some make money. Money. <laughs> Money is not a show about picking stocks for you. It's a show about empowering you to think for yourself. You are the reason why we do this. We want to level the playing field for you. we've gotten some encouraging chatter from the Fed. Maybe it's time to circle back to some of the stocks that have been severely punished over the past couple months, particularly in tech. Instead of the case of Qualcomm, the gigantic wireless communications semiconductor play, where the stock is now down 25% from September highs. This is stuff that's going on right now. Can you believe that? I mean, Qualcomm wasn't ex- exactly expensive before the meltdown, but it's gotten even cheaper. sinks for sells for 13 times 2019's earnings estimates. Company reported three weeks ago, but even though the headline numbers were solid, management told a very compelling tale about the rollout of the next generation, 5G wireless technology, a huge story that really kicks off next year. The stock got slammed anyway, because Qualcomm's guidance for the next quarter was somewhat light, hey, thanks to some lost Apple business. The issue here is very simple. The next few months may be decidedly suboptimal, especially since there seems to be a genuine slowdown in smartphones worldwide. But once we break through to 2019, the 5G story kicks in, and that could have enormous potential. Meanwhile, the stock supports a 4.7 4.4% yield. So you're basically being paid to wait. Question is, will it be worth waiting? Let's dig deeper about 5G with Steve Monkoff. He's the CEO of Qualcomm. Find out more about how the company's doing where it's headed, Mr. Monkoff. Welcome back to Mad Money. Steve, first, uh, I'm so glad you're here because no matter what happens, people keep saying the cavalry is coming, the cavalry coming, it is 5G. Steve, I don't even know what 5G is gonna do or why I need it or what's gonna happen with it.
1: Well, I'm hopefully hopefully I can help answer that. So, Kelby, will I throw away my right. phone? What will I do? Well, I think you're, you're going to see immediately that your phone is going to be faster, and you're going to have more capability coming f- to you from the carrier. For example, just to put it in perspective, you're going to have 10x the speed, and the carrier is going to be able to deliver that at 1 30th of the price. And so you're going to see a lot of business model evolution, which is why you see the Verizons of the world trying to figure out how they can compete with the wireline carriers. And it's not just world uh, in the U.S., it's happening worldwide. The entire cellular industry, starting next year, is going to transition to 5G. They see tremendous benefits, and that's just in the cellular industry. There's a second wave, which will happen about a year or two later, which every industry that cares about getting their things connected to the Internet, which is essentially every industry, they're going to be disrupted by 5G as well. So this is the biggest change, I think, to the industry, meaning the cellular industry and the relevancy of its roadmap that I've seen during the 20, 25 years that I've worked at Qualcomm.
0: All right. Now, what you just told me makes me feel like that everybody who keeps throwing away all these technology stocks, including yours, that have to do with telco, may be making a big mistake, but is it within our time horizon that it's worth investing in?
1: Well, you know, for us, it's right on the doorstep. So in 2019, in the spring of 2019, you'll start to see the initial launches here in the United States and actually in Korea. That will flow uh, mid-year to, in Europe and then in China in the second half of the year. So worldwide, the entire world is going to transition to 5G. We think it's a big opportunity for us. We think the first mover gets the advantage, and, and we're going to be it.
0: Now, what kind of infrastructure will we need all over the world to make this happen? Because I know our system is not ready to handle 5G.
1: Well, actually it is. If you, if you look at the testing that people have been doing, people have been preparing for this for many years. Certainly we have at Qualcomm as, as a number of other big technology companies. They've allocated the spectrum and now they're installing a number of base stations to enable that. And what the base stations look like now, they're much smaller. They look more like the wireless access point that's in your home and less like the big, uh, you know, base station of old. So, it's a tremendous amount of, op, of uh, activity going on worldwide to deploy these things. We're working with everybody, and uh, there's just a tremendous amount of activity to prepare for it.
0: Steve, will I still need a cable, uh, a cable TV?
1: In a lot of places in the world, I think you're, you're not going to do that. I mean, if you look at what people are doing, and if they, if they look at their wireline um, spend, and they, and they decompose it into, there's a certain amount that I pay for content, and a certain amount that I pay for the transport or the connectivity... Uh, there's a real opportunity with 5G, the economics are such, that the wireless operators can just give you the connectivity piece and you can bring your over-the-top service. And you're seeing that happening, particularly in, in the younger generation. They, they spend less, much less time on linear TV. Right Now, we are going to provide the technology to enable that to happen. That's just one of probably 30 different industries that will be disrupted by by 5G.
0: Now, we know that you have a dispute with Apple. We know that a lot of people have been selling Apple stock because they don't think that there's anything new on the horizon. Let's just say you're able to work out uh, something or if you continue to do stuff with Apple. Is it possible that there is a whole new iteration of Apple's that will be powered by Qualcomm, say, that we might want to upgrade to given the speed that you just mentioned?
1: Well, I think there's always an opportunity and a risk when you have these big uh, G transitions or mm-hmm. the generations of wireless change. It's the opportunity to either be left behind or to to make sure that you're part of that new generation. Of course, we work with everybody. We would love to work right. with Apple. We think there's a great opportunity to do that. Um and uh, we think we think the people that move quickly to these new generations, they tend to win. If you look at the history of what's happened to the the Motorola's and the Blackberries, the people that may that embrace the new technology do the best. Of course, we we try to provide that to everybody. And there's an opportunity there with every OEM.
0: Steve, this sounds so transcendent that I want the United States to be number one. Are we going to be able to be number one or are there other countries that are going to catch us or pass us?
1: Well, this, I, I would tell you, the United States still has a very strong position. We are obviously a big part of that. Uh, but this is the the first time that I've seen in wireless where there's been so much interest from the governments. And one of the reasons is because in, an, in a world where everything is connected to the Internet, um, the things and the companies that connect you to the Internet wirelessly, they better be trusted. They better be um, able to meet the demand. And... And they want to make sure that their industrial policy, this is the government's, they want to make sure their Mm -hmm. industrial policy takes that into account. And what's interesting, if you look today, this is the first time, this is the first generation of wireless where um, the Chinese carriers will launch wireless service in the same calendar year as the American carriers. That never happened before. And it's because it is so important not only to the cellular industry, but to many other industries like automotive or healthcare or the industrial companies, So it's going to be a very transformative change, and it's definitely captured the attention of governments.
0: All right, one last question. I know you guys are at Apple. Some people say you're talking. Some people say you're not talking. Can you give us a little update? Because I want to buy an Apple 5G phone, and I want it to have Paul come in.
1: <laughs> well, we do, too. Uh, and, of course, uh, we, we, we do talk as, as companies. And, and uh, I think what you're seeing, really, is activities that are consistent with, really, the fourth quarter of the game and not the first quarter. And uh, we've always talked about, I've been very consistent, that uh, this year, the second half of this year and into next year is when we're really on the doorstep of, uh, of finding a resolution. And we don't see anything different than that. Of course, we're working very hard on, on that as well.
0: Well, you are the 5G play. You're the 5G person. And I'm so glad you explained it to us because it does sound like we're all going to upgrade. and It's going to be a tidal wave of technological buying, and certainly with the stocks, including Qualcomm. Thank you so much, Steve Molenkoff, the CEO of Qualcomm. We have money back after the break. Can tech stocks finally stage a real sustainable comeback here? I say it depends on the stock. Tech has become so hated so fast that you've got to believe there's some bargains here, even after this week's uh, this terrific bouncer. However, you've got to be really selective. Sure, Kramer Salesforce.com spiked more than 10% today after the cloud-based enterprise software purveyor reported a terrific quarter and gave great guidance. But Salesforce is one of the greatest software companies on earth. And its stock has barely begun to roll back its recent losses. While Salesforce's great quarter may have ended the cloud king bear market. Well, that doesn't mean you should flock to lower quality tech names with more, what, say, have worse prospects than Salesforce. Salesforce is exactly the kind of stock that can potentially triumph, even if today's bounce proves to be temporary. It's got fabulous management, fabulous business. Fabulous growth, and it's not dependent on the global economy because its wares have become a necessity, as if you go listen to that conference call, you will understand, and I urge you to do so. What is the Salesforce best growth was in Europe? Arguably the weakest of all regions economically around the globe. But what about tech stocks that have none of those secular growth characteristics? What about the ones that are at the mercy of gross domestic product growth? Take DXC technologies. That's a relatively new company, created last year when Hewlett Packard Enterprises spun off its own enterprise services division and merged it with Computer Sciences Corp. CSC, for short. Now that was a smart deal, and its aftermath, the stock was an excellent performer. If you bought DXC after the HP enterprise deal closed in April of last year and you held it through September, you had a fifty-nine percent gain in only eighteen months. That was easy. But since then, like so many other tech names, the stock has collapsed from 96 down to 62 as of today. Ugh, a vertigo-inducing 35% decline. Those 18 months were the gains I just mentioned, DXC has now rolled back nearly all of them. That's a brutal move, and it still might not even be over. Before I get into my reasoning, though, let me give you some background. DXC describes itself as the world's leading independent end-to-end IT services company. Plain English, it's an information technology integrator, a company that helps other businesses figure out how to go digital. And you know how important that is. Benioff talked about that again last time. And man, it used to be a total market darling. This thing was beloved. Right from the get-go, after the merger last spring, DXC was a good earner. The company's kind of like Ralphie on The Sopranos. He was a good earner, too. But when the boss wants you gone, you're gone. In this case, the stock market's standing in for Tony Soprano, which is kind of a surprisingly apt comparison. Still, DXC made a habit of massively beating Wall Street's earnings estimates. And that's why money managers have loved it. Hey, wait, that's why we used to own DXC from my travel trust, which you can follow along by joining the Plus.com club. The thing is, these upside surprises were driven almost entirely by cost cuts. (laughs) That was the whole point of merging HPE's enterprise services division with CSC. It let the combined company achieve huge savings, and they hit their targets faster than expected. But in the end, you can't sustainably grow your business via cost cuts. Sooner or later, you need to generate real revenue growth. And right out of the gate, DXCs wasn't too impressive from the beginning, really, uh, on that front at all. It was much more of a cost cut story. So a year ago, management announced another deal. DXC would spin off its public sector business and combine it with two very similarly privately held companies to form a separate entity called Perspecta. Basically, the transaction looked a lot like what HP Enterprises did with CSC to create DXC in the first place. And as of a year ago, that deal had made people a lot of money. But as the stock continued to work its way higher, we decided to sell it for the trust, unloading the last of our position in early April. Why? Well, first, we had a 25 percent gain and we didn't want to give it back. Bulls make money. Bears make money. Get slaughtered. I figured there was much less reason to own DXC after the catalyst the spin off its government business passed. And I also worried that the numbers could get poleaxed if we ever saw any kind of slowdown in corporate information technology spending. And we got the trade war worries. And while DXC only gets 4% of its sales from China, it's very much a global business. One that gets 56% of its sales from overseas, which makes it vulnerable to a worldwide economic slowdown. And it sure feels like we got a worldwide slowdown, doesn't it? When DXC reported in May, the company once again beat the estimates, although it was a smaller beat than we got accustomed to. And management's guidance for the next fiscal year, it was unbelievably awful. Ugh. I love that. Wall Street wanted to see $24 billion in revenue. DXC talked about $21.5 to $22 billion in revenue. analysts were looking for $9.08 of earnings? DXC told you to expect something between $7.75 and $8.15. The stock plunged about 9% over the next couple of days. Now, but somehow it quickly rebounded. Do you know that in less than two months later it was making new highs? Can you imagine? That's how forgiving the old bull market was. DXC tells you the earnings will be 12% weaker than expected, yet it doesn't even lose 10% of its value. And within weeks, the whole episode's forgotten. Oh, that's that was then. This is now. I have to ask, what, what the heck were the buyers thinking? Simple. They thought DXC was cheap. Represented value. Even at the reduced number, the stock was trading at roughly 10 times earnings when it pulled back after the quarter. That's some seriously backwards logic, though. When a company issues a disappointing forecast, you have to wonder if maybe it only seems cheap because the earnings are going lower. In August, DXC delivered a nice earnings beat, but their sales were lower than expected, and management merely reiterated its tepid full-year guidance. Stocks still continued to climb. Boy, they used to give you chances to get out, didn't they? When tech started breaking down in October, DXC initially held it better than its faster-growing peers. But a little over a month ago, a British technology website, The Register, published a devastating piece where we learned that the head of DXC's America's division had, been go- had let go over a double-digit drop in region sales. Wow, that's terrifying. The piece claims that the company's high turnover rate is hurting its ability to make sales. Here's a snippet. Quote, one of our sources on this occasion told us the company is in chaos as all the cuts are leading to mounting customer complaints. End quote. Apparently, those massive cost uh, cost cuts have translated into lower quality service for DXC's customers. Who could have guessed? Stock got obliterated, went down 16% on the news. Since then, it's only gotten worse. Granted, it's just one article. But when you look up the company on Glassdoor, which we like to do, the site where workers uh, leave reviews about their employers, the ratings here are pretty heinous. Oh, and the latest quarter seemed to confirm the register's diagnosis. When DXC reported three weeks ago, the company gave you a modest earnings beat, but the thing that really jumped out was the gigantic revenue shortfall. Deadly for a tech company with sales down nearly 19% year over year. Management raised their full year earnings forecast slightly. They also shaved hundreds of million dollars off their revenue forecast. So the stock got hammered. Now, the next day, DXC announced a $2 billion buyback on top of their pre existing $1.3 billion repurchase authorization. That's equal to 19% of the share count. Holy cow. And at these levels, the stock sure does seem cheap. Trades at 7.6 times this year's earnings. Yesterday, the darn thing even caught an upgrade from Cowan. I think that's a mistake, though. Sure, maybe DXC can give you a short-term bounce, like it did today, thanks to some relief from the Fed or its own monster buyback. But long-term, I am very worried about these guys. The buyers of tech stocks, what do they want? They want fast growth, not slow to declining value. Bottom line, there are tons of tech stocks that have sold off dramatically for no particular reason. DXC Technologies is not one of them. The thesis here was all about cost cuts but now it seems like the cuts may have gone too far to the point where they're hurting DXC's ability to get new business in a tough environment. That could be a self-defeating strategy. I want no part of it. Let's go to Crystal in California. Crystal.
1: Hello, Mr. Kramer. My name is Crystal. I've been watching your show with my mom since I'm 18 and
0: now I'm 21. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. I have a small position in ZUO that I bought at 29 after watching you interviewing the CEO. Mm-hmm. Somehow my stock is down almost 31%. I have some extra money now. Uh, do you think at what price should I buy more or should I put Oh, no, money no. Teen Sue's doing great job. Crystal, first of all, thank you that you've been watching. And look, I mean, there's been a big uh, collapse in tech stocks. I would buy, I would average down, yes, to buy uh, Zora right here. I've used their products. They are amazing. John in Nevada, please, John. Hey, Jim, long-time listener. Actually, second-time caller. Okay. Um, I got this company I'm interested in. Don't know too much about it, but it's called SurveyMonkey. And recently, I was looking at their competitor, and they were recently bought out by another company, SAP. Right. So I was just... Curious if you thought maybe this was a, a takeover target, or if it was. Well, look, I, I, I don't like to recommend stories, uh, stocks, and tech. this came public just now, so they could have sold themselves if there was something going on. Here's what I think: I think Xander Laurie was on our show, the CEO. I thought he acquitted himself very well. I felt after it that this stock is a buy, ah, unique buy. product, best in show. I think you should own SBMK, also known as Survey Monkey. All right, tech has become so hated, maybe until today. And I think you got to focus on the ones that are growing fast, not the ones that are valued. So I would stay away from GMC. Hey, much more Mad Money, at. I'm playing Mad Money Oligopoly to find the companies that have left the competition in the dust. Then I'm buying a play that could light a fire under your portfolio or reveal the name just hit. And the lawyer calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Now that the Federal Reserve has given us some breathing room, what are we going to do with it? After today's terrific run, I want to search for new opportunities for stocks that can go higher, even if the Fed decides to keep tightening after next month's rate hike. Although, fortunately for both Main Street and Wall Street, that seems a lot less likely after today's statements. Still, this is an uncertain environment, which is why I'm always on the lookout for stories where the deck is pretty much stacked in your favor. I would never recommend a stock on this show if I thought the underlying company was breaking the law. Terrible risk reward there. But I love the stocks of companies that have somehow found a way to legally give themselves a seemingly unfair advantage. That's the best kind of advantage. Just look at Lind P-L-C-L-I-N-D-E, a huge industrial gas distributor. What a great business that can be. That was formed from the merger of equals between Praxair, its German counterpart, Lind AG, a little over a month ago. I, I, I thought this was never going to get through. It's just too ridiculously promising, bountiful even. Frankly, I have a strong suspicion that this was a blatantly anti-competitive deal. I'm a little amazed that the antitrust authorities let it happen at all. Or I would not be amazed if not for the fact that mergers like this one keep getting approved. And we got to find them and we got to buy them. Don't get me wrong. I love the Praxair-Lynn deal. Sure, if I were running the Justice Department, I might have blocked it, but I'm not a regulator. My job is to help you run your portfolio. And when it comes to helping you try to make money, anti-competitive mergers tend to be winners. Let me put it like this. What's good for an individual company may not be good for the broader economy, let alone the whole country or the entire world. I think the praxair Lynn tie-up is very good for the three largest companies now that are now left in the industrial gas business. But I bet it will be suboptimal for their customers over the long haul. Why is that? Simple. When Lynn and Praxair linked up, they took the industrial gas sector from four major players down to three, the other two being air liquid and air products. Oh, and and, and not that long ago, it was five. But then air liquid snapped up air gas, Philadelphia's own. In other words, the industry has gone from being extremely competitive to being what I like to consider to be a slap-happy oligopoly, a market that's controlled by a small number of players who can't help but dominate it. Now, you don't have to like that the industrial gas base has become an oligopoly. This is an important industry that supplies tons of different sectors. There really should be more than three large-scale competitors, though. Like it or not, though, oligopolies often make great investments. Because once they become oligopolistic, they tend to have more pricing power, higher gross margins, better earnings per share. Again, I'm not saying that Lim will collude with his competitors to manipulate prices in any way. Oh, no. They don't need to. When you only have three players, it's easy to avoid getting into ruinous price wars that's so, that have devastated so many other industries. Let me give you some examples. In the old days, the airlines used to have a normal, well-functioning market, at least from the perspective of consumers. There were lots of different competitors vying for business. And any time they expanded too aggressively, the airlines, say, would end up competing on price of the same routes. It was a real race to the bottom. Great for cheap airfare, but terrible for the profitability of the airline companies. Everyone knows the stocks were horrible. In fact, we just assumed that airlines would need to be bailed out every uh, decade or two because the business of air travel was so intensely competitive and inherently awful. Then the Justice Department approved a series of airline mega mergers. Delta absorbs Northwest, United combines with Continental, and finally in 2016, US Airways joins forces with American. Now, just four carriers control nearly 70% of the domestic flights here in the US, and many routes have no competition at all, which leads to exorbitant pricing and awful service. Fabulous for the airlines, horrible for you. Even though the airline stocks have sold off along with everything else in recent months, this group is doing much, much better than it used to. Hey, particularly, by the way, United Airlines wow, United's on fire. These companies keep raising prices and fees just when you would have expected them to cut prices in the old days. Just look at Spirit Air surging 15% yesterday, another 6% today after a pretty good quarter. With so many competitors taken out of the equation, this industry has finally been able to thrive. How about Ball Corp, another one of our favorites that makes cans for all sorts of beverages? A few years ago, Ball Corp was allowed to buy one of its main competitors in a three to two transaction, meaning now there are only two large-scale makers of these cans left. Who makes up these laws? The regulators allowed them to consolidate into not just an oligopoly, but a duopoly. Now the beverage companies typically lock in long-term contracts, so it took a while to pay off. But Ball Corp's has finally been able to raise prices on cans, which is why this boring can maker stock is up 31% for the year. Don't you want to find one of those? So then let's circle back to Lynn. I don't expect the remaining three industrial gas companies to, relate, uh, to raise prices anytime soon. Oh, no. That would draw uh, the ire of the regulators uh, right after the deal's approval. But down the road... Lynn's going to have a lot more pricing power simply because it only has two large scale competitors. Of course, that's not the only reason to like the stock. Even if you put all this consolidation stuff to one side, I still like this combo on the merds. Paxera Phenomenal Management's chairman and CEO Steve Angel just took over as CEO of the new Lynn. Meanwhile, the old Lynn Group was renowned for having the best technology in the industry. Put them together and you've got a powerhouse. Plus, the new Lynn's expecting around $1 billion in cost synergies. They had to sell off billions of dollars worth of businesses to get antitrust approval, and they may use that money to buy back their own stock. Now, after today, Lynn's stock trades at a pricey 25 times next year's earnings estimates, a slight premium compared to Air, Air Products or Air Liquide, but I think it deserves to trade at a premium. Lynn's now the largest player in the space, 32% market share, compared to 24% for Air Liquide and the next closest competitor. Can you believe that? Just two companies control 56 percent of the unbelievably lucrative industrial gas space. Here's the bottom line. If you want a healthy, functional, capitalist economic system, you have to hope the regulators start blocking deals like the Praxier-Lin tie-up. But as long as the Justice Department's antitrust division and some of the European antitrust authorities keep approving seemingly anti-competitive mergers, we might as well try to profit from them. The new Lynn is now the largest player in the sectorally growing industrial gas space. So it has the most to gain now that the group's gone from four major players down to three. And between the synergies and the buybacks, oh, there's a whole lot to like here. You know what? I'd be a buyer. I'd be a buyer right here, right now. Stick with It is time! And then the light round is over. Are you ready? Ski Daddy. Time for the light round. We're going to start with Gilbert in Florida. Gilbert. Booyah, Kramer. Booyah. Booyah. Uh, first I want to tell you, thank you very much. We started investing in 09 before I retired from the Army. My family and I are getting rich carefully. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you for serving. Thank you very much for mentioning my book. What's up? Hey, I have some cash. I want to put to work um, in a long position. And I've been looking at Berkshire Hathaway B Class, and it has grown 23 percent year over year for the last three years. Uh, what's your take? With the I think it's a great pick? idea. I think the Warren Buffett's is great. I also think there's a bench strength there, and you should pull the trigger. Let's go to Dakota, who happens to be in New York. Dakota, booyah, Jim. Booyah. Exxon AXN uh, was formerly Chaser International. Yeah, we like that company. It's got a, a terrific CEO who's compensated as the stock goes higher. Stock's been coming in of late, but it's still up 70%, and I do like it. I do like it a lot. Jack in Ohio, Jack. Hey, getting ready to start your book. Stay mad for life, Jim. There you go. Hey, it's a uh, dividend play for uh, 2019. OKE10. I like one oak very much it's got almost six percent yield water holes is the CFO he's an old friend of mine I think they do a terrific job I think this is a great place to start a position let's go to Chris in Pennsylvania Chris hey Jim hey thanks you uh, thanks thanks for taking my call and, of course. Uh, and thanks for your help here I uh, I got a question about FNB and it's a it's a regional bank and Jim, the numbers look good on paper, but the stock's been flat as a pancake. What What do you well, think? Well, you know, the problem is the regional banks themselves have been a, a nightmare to own. Uh, I don't think the Fed's actions today necessarily make me feel better about them. I'd rather see in J.P. Morgan. Uh, I think that's a better situation. How about uh, Julio in Florida? Julio. Yes, Jimbo. How are you? Thank you for taking my call. Thank you. This is Julio from on Fontana Beach, Florida. Okay. All right. I have a two-part question. Copa Airlines, CPA, all or sale? Oh, okay. Um, You know, it's not bad. It's not bad. I do like the airlines. It yields 4%. But, you know, I've been going with the highest quality. I mean, I would actually go with Delta here. Hasn't had a big move. Or American. I think those are better. Uh, let's go to Jeff in New York. Jeff. Hey, how are you, Kramer? I am Before good. How you are you, you partner? Today? What's going on? Good, Acadia Pharmaceuticals, ACAD, is what I'm interested in knowing. We keep getting asked about this one. It's amazing how much people want to buy this stock. That was up three today. It's central nervous system. It's really hard. That's a very difficult area. People have not made. had a lot of success there, but it's suspected people like it. I'm not going to t- tell anyone not to uh, speculate in the stock. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. All right, I hate to be this guy, but on spectacular days like today, you need to think about what could still go wrong. So what's the biggest risk to the system right now? After listening to Fed Chief Jay Powell, who made a lot of sense today, I'd say it's non-bank lending. There are many non-bank institutions making home loans that could collapse in value. These companies came out of nowhere. They now control about half of the current mortgage market. That's a trillion dollars worth of mortgages a year. Powell talked about these non-bank lenders in a speech today, describing them as imprudent, arguing that they could be a problem for the credit markets, potentially even the whole financial system. So who are we talking about here? Now, the largest non-bank lenders are Quicken Loans, PennyMac, and Loan Depot. I have no idea if those are the ones he's ca- talking about or worried about. But if you get non-banks lending money without playing by the bank rules, whatever they are, perhaps lending with low doc or no doc and little money down, well, that could be a serious problem that I'm worried about. So what do you do if you're Jerome Powell? Do you raise interest rates by another quarter percent or a half or maybe a full percentage point to stop these non-bank lenders from making poorly documented loans with little money down? Oh, that's what we did in 2006. So I say no, no, no. The Fed has the authority to regulate these non-bank lenders. It can make sure they play by the same rules as J.P. Morgan and Bank of America. If there are outliers and reckless lenders, you don't raise rates. Yeah, shut them down. The Fed has that power. They should use it. What concerns me here is that once again, the Federal Reserve will miss the mark, just like it did in the run-up to the financial crisis. In 2006, then-Chairman Ben Bernanke could have said, we will not tolerate unsound lending and discipline the alphas like IndyMac, Wachovia, Countrywide, Lehman, Bear." If the Fed had simply used its regulatory authority, we might have avoided the, worst, uh, the second worst crisis in financial history. Why am I so worried about this? Because the housing numbers suggest sales are collapsing right now. It's collapsing. And they're running substantially behind last year's pace. According to the Mortgage Bankers Association, home sales are down 8.9% versus last month. 8.9. The median home price is 3.1% lower than a year ago. Although there are pockets that are far lower than that, there's more than 7.4, there's 7.4 months of supply. That's an amount that's starting to move toward levels we haven't seen since the peak a dozen years ago. So sales going down, supply going up, and rates going up. That's a recipe for disaster. No wonder Powell to change tune. Housing punches well above its weight in our economy, and it's only one part of the broader weakness, which includes autos, thanks GM, oil and gas, higher-end retail. But this other stuff pales in comparison to the housing slowdown. Let me read you part of a conference call from an alpha called Redfin, the technology-powered real estate brokerage group. They told us, quote, in our last call, we said that the market was weaker than most analysts realized, especially in high-priced coastal cities. Since then, rising rates and high home prices have caused buyers to become cautious industry-wide, a trend that we believe will continue, quote. Redfin then talks about sales declining by 20% in places like Seattle, San Jose, Sacramento, Los Angeles, Orange County. Ouch! And that was three weeks ago. Since then, things have gotten much worse. Let me remind you what happens at this point in the housing cycle. When you get a great deal of housing inventory and prices start coming down while mortgage rates go up, that typically causes a collapse in pricing. As sellers are desperate to get out, but few buyers can actually afford these homes because they're swapping out of a cheap old mortgage for an expensive new one. At that point, homeowners who want to sell have no choice but to chase buyers further down. If the non-bank lenders issued floating debt, These sellers with floating-rate mortgages will default en masse if they can't find buyers. It could be a mini version of the mortgage meltdown we had a decade ago. So while my larger takeaway, of course, is that Powell deserves a ton of credit for recognizing he'd been way too bullish about the economy in early October and changing his mind, it's now time for him to put on his regulatory hat. He needs to crack down on these non-bank lenders with firm enforcement, not higher interest rates, which will just push any troubled lenders over the edge make things worse. We know what's happening. We see the ads. We know there's been no little little or no regulation to these guys. I'm not crying wolf. The Fed needs to crack down on these non-bank lenders before it's too late. Mr. Chairman, don't raise rates because of these ne'er-do-wells, whoever they may be. Raise hell. Stick with Craig. Thank you very much, Jay pal You did the homework, Came to a different conclusion than what you had, and that gives us Main Street, Main Street, not just Wall Street, a new lease on life. Thank you. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow.